Well, what a start to Regen 2015, huh? Yeah? It didn't it's not seem like it was that long ago since we were here, and yet we are back again and looking forward to an amazing week. I'd like to start off tonight by thanking everyone for being here. This is really going to be an awesome week. Uh, you are going to have epic time, an epic time on the field playing games. You got some amazing games, some new games and some old classics we're bringing back to you. Uh, we're going to get to sing some incredible songs of praise to our God. You'll, you'll encounter great fellowship this week, and even tonight, we're going to kick it off with, with two great night games, uh, and fall, right after a rally session in here. We're going to have a blast this week. But I want to start off tonight by letting you know, and, and just to get you in the mindset, that the real special part of camp is going to be what happens in this room. When for five days, seven sessions, we get to hear from the God of the universe, the king of this universe, the one who created all things, and we get to hear from him through his word. And that's the real special part of camp, and that's the part that I hope you're most looking forward to, is putting aside the distractions for this week and hearing from God, hearing truth from the divine ruler. This is an amazing opportunity. Other people don't get this. Not many people get a week where they get to hear preaching from John MacArthur and Austin Duncan. Not many people get a week where they just get to focus on their own souls. This is a good place to be this week. You, you should be very thankful to be here. There are a lot of people that are praying for you. Uh, I know that there are people who maybe even paid for some of you to be here, uh, work stuff out, get the details in order so you could be here this week. You should be very blessed and very excited that you get to be part of what is going to happen this week. This is a good place to be. And before I get into the word tonight, I want to say two things. First of all, I want to let you know that you are here because God wanted you to be here. You are here this week because God desired that you would be in Point Loma on July 20th to the 24th. You're here because he wants you here. And second of all, you're here because he wants to do business with your heart. You might have come for the games, you might have come for the friends, you might have come because that cute girl or that cute boy that you're trying to still become Facebook friends with is here, and maybe that's why you came. But I could tell you this, the reason you are here is because God wants to do business with your heart this week. God wants to expose your heart through his word. He wants to do a spiritual CAT scan and show you where you're at with him. And so I hope you're ready to be changed this week. I hope you're ready to be exposed to sin. Some of you need to see sin in your life that you didn't recognize was there before. Uh, some of you maybe are believers, but you're just not really running after Christ. You're just kind of going through the motions, and God wants to expose that. For others of you, maybe that you don't know the Lord. Either you don't know him because you've never experienced church or religion or anything in your life, or you don't know him because you just love religion but not Jesus. You're here this week because God wants to get a hold of your heart. And that's our aim this week, and that is our goal. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in with that mindset before us. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity we have to look into your word. Thank you that you've brought each student here. 
We know that there are various circumstances that you sovereignly ordained to bring every single student here this week, Lord. Pray that you would use me and use the other men preaching, that you use the power of your word, the spirit through the word, to impact hearts, to draw those that know you closer to you, and even to save those who are in the kingdom of darkness and that you would transfer them to the kingdom of your son. Pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I think we, all of us in this room, sometimes have a tendency of saying things without thinking. Would you agree? Sometimes you, you say things without thinking. I remember working at Chick-fil-A and a coworker of mine, this, this young girl, came out of the freezer and goes, it was freezing in there. And immediately paused and went, oh, well, Clearly, that was an expected thing. It was the freezer. Of course, it is going to be freezing the freezer. She wasn't thinking. She immediately felt, oh, this is foolish that I said that. Sometimes we say things without, without thinking, and, and sometimes we say things thinking we know what they mean and not really having a clear understanding of what we mean. Do you guys agree with that? Sometimes you'll say something like, oh, I think this word means this, but I, I don't really know. I'll give you an example. I taught algebra for two years. Um, so I've been engulfed in the world of eighth grade and freshman uh, girl vocabulary. And one of the words uh, that I got to hear a lot, and maybe some of you have a friend that says this word a lot, is the word literally. <laughs> some of your friends literally say this every five seconds. Literal means what it means. Literal, it's exactly what they mean. And I saw two cardinal sins that came with this rule. First of all, uh, there was unnecessary specification where they said, I literally woke up at 6.14 this morning. And it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's specific. That's helpful, I guess. Um, but, you know, that's how they decided to use the word. But the other time is when they'd use it as a metaphor. For instance, I remember one girl going, oh, I literally ate like a pig. And <laughs> that's a simile. Uh, it's using like or as. And I literally, that, she was not on all fours eating out of a trough. I hope not. If she was, I, I stand corrected. We say stuff and we don't. We don't fully know what we're saying. We have sayings that we use in, in American culture that we don't really know where they came from. I, the, you maybe have heard the saying, it's easier than shooting fish in a barrel. Have you ever thought about that? Like, who's doing that? <laughs> like, who is like, dude, I got this fish, and it's going down. <laughs> You're done. Right? That's easier than that. Or how about this one? Oh, there, there's many ways to skin a cat. Have you heard this phrase where there's many ways to skin a cat? Can I ask you this question? Who's skinning cats? And who's doing it so often, they're thinking up of a multitude of ways by which to do it. Like, hey, can we skin this cat? Oh, there are many ways you could skin that cat. <laughs> Let me count the ways we could skin that cat. We say stuff without thinking about what it means. Maybe you've thought of this one before, but let me give you a famous children's song called Rockabye Baby. Rockabye Baby, right? In the treetops. That's so cute. I mean, he's just up there and he's hanging out. And, and then when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. And when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. <laughs> and down will go baby, cradle and all. This is some demented song that people sing to a four-year-old. All right, now go to bed. Like, I would not tell that in a treehouse. That would not work out. We say things and we think we know what they mean, but we're not really clear. 
You know, camp is a good time for us to reflect. It's a time for us to reflect on the basics of Christianity. It's time for us to review. And I think it'd be helpful for us tonight to review. And let me give you a question, and it involves a term that you're familiar with. The question is this, that I'd like to start off with, is what is a Christian? What is a Christian? How would you answer that question? What is a Christian? Maybe for some of you, you've grown up in church your whole life. And for you, what a Christian is, is it's someone who doesn't watch certain movies or doesn't say certain words and we never get to watch the 10 o'clock football games because that's where the time that we're at church. That's what a Christian is. Or I attend certain clubs or I go to certain events like Regen every year. That's what a Christian is. Maybe others of you who used to go to church and maybe you're just kind of getting back into it are going to say, well, a Christian is kind of what I used to be. I used to go to church a lot. I used to do all those activities and now I don't anymore. Maybe you're new this week. Maybe you're totally new to church. You've you've maybe been to church twice in your life on two different Christmas services, and this whole idea of Jesus and God is just really unfamiliar to you, and a a Christian is someone who's maybe judgmental, or they're boring, or they, they seem like they have to just follow all these rules. What is a Christian? Tonight, what I want to do is I just want to cut right to the chase to start off this camp. I want to put all the cards on the table and make sure that we understand very clearly what a Christian is. For those who have heard it a thousand times, for those who are ignoring it or making some sort of false idea of what a Christian is, or maybe those who've never been to church before, who, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who has surrendered their entire life to Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who has surrendered all of themselves to Jesus who has said, my whole life is about him. There's someone who has seen the weight of their sin. They've seen Jesus as the perfect substitutionary death to pay for their sin. They see him as the person that they should be and and could not walk in the same holiness, and yet his perfection could be given to them through the cross. And they say, I want to live for that person. That person has all of me, and all of me is given over to him. A Christian is not just a, a title we slap onto our social media status. It's not just a group we identify with. It's that you have given all of yourself to Jesus Christ in every area of life, in your sports, in your dating, in your social media, in your school, in your career choice, in your future, in your family. You're saying all of it is submitted to Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're new with us and you're thinking, that, that sounds a little crazy. I, I know people that are Christians that attend church on Sunday, but I don't see that kind of devotion, that kind of zeal, that kind of allegiance. I mean, you know, maybe that's, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of far out there. Or maybe you're thinking, well, Josh, what you're describing is kind of an on-fire Christian. There's various degrees of Christian. I'm kind of more at the JV level. You're describing varsity. And before you think I'm crazy, I want to show you that this kind of devotion is actually what Jesus demanded. Jesus demanded this kind of devotion. In Luke, 25, or Luke chapter 14, he says to large crowds, he says, if anyone comes to me and in his love for me by comparison does not hate his own father and mother and wife 
and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if you want to follow me, I have to be the most supreme relationship you have. Everything else falls underneath me. That's extreme allegiance. But Luke 14, 27 says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus if you're not saying, I'm willing to embrace anything to follow him, even suffering. I will take all the suffering the world brings as long as I follow my Savior. What about Matthew 13, 44? Jesus' description of the kingdom of heaven says, it is like a treasure hidden in the field. It's like a treasure you find in the field. And you find it and you say, I have to have this treasure, so I will sell all that I have to buy that field so I can get that treasure. This is not an on-fire Christianity. This is normal Christianity. And this is the allegiance that Jesus expects. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian, literally a little Christ, has given their entire life to follow after Jesus. All of who they are for him. This week, we're going to be talking about being a citizen which is another word we need to understand. And we're going to dive into that theme as we go throughout the week and more in depth, even starting tomorrow. But it fits with this idea of unyielding devotion to Christ. Our theme verse for this week is going to be Philippians 3.20, where it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that a title. Think about this. If you're a Christian, not only is your sin paid for now, not only are you able to fight against sin in this life now, but you've been given a title as citizen of heaven. You're someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. You've been given a home in the kingdom of heaven. You've been placed there permanently. You have a future there with him. You've been given access to heaven where you don't come as a stranger, but a resident. It's not like when you're on vacation in a hotel room, it's like, okay, I just got to be here for a while. It's no, that is your permanent home. Christians are citizens whose home nation is not in this world, but is in the kingdom of heaven. That is where we belong. And this really has... Two ideas behind it. It's really just two things. First of all, that means if you're a citizen, that means your home is in heaven. That this world is not your home. This is a temporary place. This is not the place where we should be placing all our hope and all our devotion and all our love. But it's in heaven where we're at home. Heaven is our hope. And second of all, it means that our authority is in heaven. We don't submit to the ways of this world. We submit to the, to the Savior who rules in heaven above. He is the one we submit to. Same idea that we've been looking at earlier. Our whole life is about him. Our whole life is about him. This week, I have two questions that you need to wrestle with. There's two questions this week you've got to come to grips with. You've got to deal with in your own heart. Find time to, to meditate on these questions and answer them for you. Here are the questions. Number one, are you a citizen? 
Are you a citizen? Do you have your eternal home in heaven? And number two, do you act like a citizen? Do you act like someone whose permanent residence is in eternal glory with Christ? Or do you act like someone who thinks they're going to be on this planet forever? Are you a citizen and are you living like a citizen? Two questions that you need to wrestle with this week. Are you living with an unyielding passion for Jesus Christ where all your hope is in heaven? Or is your mindset on this world? Now, as I say this, I realize I'm talking to high school students. And there, would some, there are some who would say, Josh, you're wasting your time. Young people are incapable of living with that kind of faith for Jesus Christ. They're not really capable of living with that kind of devotion for Jesus. You can expect some things from teenagers. Maybe once in a while they can get up and read a verse, or maybe they could lead the group in prayer, or you know, maybe they can invite a friend or two every once in a while. People say, but for the most part, you can't expect this kind of devotion from a high school student. Maybe expect some memory verses and that they know where their Bible is, but not this passion for the Savior. I would tell you that history would disagree. When we look at history, when I look at history, the reason why I think you can live with this ferocious passion for Christ is because it's been done for years. Done for years where young people your age have said, I don't care what the world says, I'm following Jesus Christ with my all. I'm following God with my all. A few examples for you, you can jot these down. I think of a few examples from scripture. If you look at the book of Daniel, you, you see Daniel who's 15 years old. He's been taken captive from his homeland. He's being asked to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. And at 15 years old, Daniel 1.8 says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He made up his mind, I'm going to honor the Lord and not the king of this world. I'm going to honor the king of the next world. See this resolve in a young man. In Daniel chapter 3, you see the same resolve from his friends who are in their early 20s, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Rach, Shach, and Benny, if you've been vegetized. <laughs> these, these, these guys are in their late teens or early 20s. When the emperor of the world says to them, you will bow down to my gods or you will burn to death. They stand before Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the world, who makes that threat against them. And he says, what are you going to do? And he says, they say, you don't even need to ask us because we're following the Lord. Verse 17 says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But verse 18, they say, but even if he doesn't deliver us, O king, just know that we are not bowing down and serving your gods. We're resolved to follow our God. You see the same thing from David as a youth who is disgusted that none of the fellow Israelite soldiers are going to go to war against this, this Philistine who has the audacity to blaspheme God. He can't believe that no one is on the Lord's side. In the New Testament, you see Mary and Joseph, who has young people, 14, 15, or 16 years old, 
defy the norm of society and choose to honor the Lord instead. Scripture is full of young people with incredible zeal. And even beyond that, you even see this in church history as well. You see hundreds and thousands of martyrs, young martyrs in their teenage years and early 20s who go and die for the God that they believe in. In More recent times, there's stories of men like Jim Elliott, who at 21 years old, even though he had opportunities for a successful career in business, gave his life to missions, died eight years later, in Ecuador, trying to reach an Ecuadorian Indian tribe, was speared and died at the age of 29. He did great things as a young man. Many of you heard of Jonathan Edwards. Maybe he's famous. Maybe uh, you've read about him in history class, even in, in secular realms as well. You read about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was an incredible man, incredible thinker. And you might have heard of something he wrote. He wrote 70 resolutions or convictions And here's here's some of these convictions that he had about his own faith. Number four, they all start with this word resolved. He said, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. I will do all things in my life for God's glory. Number six says, he says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. All my might for God. Number 10, he says, resolved, when I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Now, why bring those up? Why is that amazing? Because Jonathan Edwards is 19 and 20 years old when he writes his 70 resolutions. This amazing devotion to the Savior brought about this great thinker. What, What made these young people do such great things for the Savior? What made these young people do such great things for the Lord? You could say a lot of things. You could just say it's normal faith. You could say it's a love for Christ, a love for the cross, uh, a determination to not disobey their God. I'm going to give you one that I think is, is clearly there in a few of those. It's because their focus was on eternity and not this life. Their focus was on the next life and not this life. And we, we see this from a few of these men. Edwards, number seven, his seventh resolution says, Resolve, never do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. At 20 years old, he's already got the end in mind. Number 22, and there's many of these. But number 22 says, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Not to get as much happiness in this world, but to get as much happiness in the next world as I can. Jim Elliott wrote these famous words when he sacrificed all that the world has to offer so that he could serve as a missionary. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. And so this amazing faith we see is fueled by a focus on eternity, a focus on the next world. 
So why talk about this at camp? Why bring this up? Why talk about citizens in the next world? Why relate this to being just a a Christian? Because I think a lot of people today have no desire, no thoughts, no passion for the next life. There are so many people today, self-professed Christians, that all their love and all their devotion and all their efforts and all their thinking and all their time is spent on this life and making this life better. We live in a society that's dominated by the here and now. Self-centered lifestyle that's about emphasizing yourself in this life. For others, it's, it's about getting as much money as they can in this life or power. For others, the idol is just comfort. My whole goal is I can live the most comfortable life now. So I want to get the house that's the most comfortable. I want to drive the car that's the most comfortable. I want to get in shape so I can wear the clothes that are most comfortable. I don't want to dedicate my time to anything because that would make me uncomfortable. I might not get the sleep I need or I might not have the relationships I want to have. I don't really want to serve too much because, again, comfort in this life is the priority. Happiness now is the end goal. And so I'll I'll devote myself to jobs in college and my kids' sports and vacations and relaxing on the weekends and sleeping and eating right because those are my priorities. We can look at that for all people, but especially for high school students, I think as well, there is a tendency to focus just on this life and to love this life. Let me ask you, high school student, what drives your thinking and your actions right now? How often is it eternity? Or is it social media? Your friends? Relationships? Grades? Sports? going to the right college, getting the right job, avoiding boredom, pleasure, sex, video games. What's this weekend going to be like? How good is prom going to be? How can I entertain myself this week? The reason why we don't see a lot of high schoolers doing the great things that we've seen in the past is because they're consumed with this world. Some of you are absolutely fascinated by high school. Fascinated by the friendship circles, fascinated by social media, fascinated by school dances, and and by the football game on on Friday night. None of which are bad things, but they are evil things when they become the aim of your life and not Jesus Christ. When you're so invested in this life and you put no focus on the next... It's the equivalent of buying furniture in the hotel room you're checking out of in four days. You're so focusing on making sure you live the most comfortable and pleasurable and look-at-me lifestyle now, and no focus on eternity, no focus on the Savior, no focus on the place where our citizenship allegedly is supposed to be. And while we might value Christ, godly priorities take the back seat. And we're not doing anything great because our focus is on nothing great. So you need to ask yourself, are you living for this world? Because citizens will live for heaven. Citizens of heaven 
will live for heaven. And they'll live for the Savior who is in heaven. Not just for relief, not just for the place, but for the Savior who through the cross bought them entrance into heaven, bought them their citizenship. Tonight, I want to look at one example of what that life would look like now. What that life would look like now. Title of my message is The Mindset of a Citizen. And if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you've got one of the Bibles we gave you as a gift, that's going to be on page 697. Uh, I understand that tonight there's new people who maybe have never been to church before. Uh, John chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 25. And just in case you've never used a Bible, when I say chapter and verse, the big numbers are your chapter, the smaller numbers are the verses. And, and now you could say you, you know something about the Bible, and, and hopefully that is helpful to you. But we'll be doing that a lot this week, chapter, verse, and just so you're aware in case you've never handed a Bible before. When we look at John the Baptist, we see a man who has a very popular ministry. John the Baptist was a man who lived during the time of Christ. He was supposed to be the forerunner, the one who came before Christ. And he had a thriving, popular ministry. John the Baptist means he meant John the Baptizer. He was one who baptized, baptized many people. And he had a ministry of thousands and thousands of people. We won't look at a map tonight, but the whole region of Israel and beyond that are coming to John the Baptist to hear him teach and to be baptized by him. We see in verse 23 of John chapter 3, it says, John was baptizing in Ainon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming out and were being baptized. Verse 25, we see his disciples are having a conversation with the Pharisees and there's a concern that arises. So, so picture this, there's this popular ministry and John the Baptist has his own disciples, his own followers, and they come to him with a concern. They come with, to him with a concern. And that concern is found in verse 26. It says, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, that's by the way a reference to, to Christ, they've been referencing earlier in the book of John. Rabbi, Jesus, he who was with you, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. They're saying he, Jesus is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Do you see the concern here? Uh, the concern here is, hey, we've got a really popular ministry and suddenly now, this thing that our whole life is built into is being threatened because everyone's going to Jesus to be baptized. You see what's going on? That, that what they've been giving their lives to is now suddenly diminishing because someone else is becoming more popular. This happens in, in life where, where sometimes businesses can disappear. And maybe that's the concern here. I'll give you an example Long ago in American culture, there was a, a fortress of economics known as Blockbuster Video. Uh, many of you have, have been to a Blockbuster Video before. Uh, for those of you that aren't aware of Blockbuster Video, if you used to want to rent a, a movie, you wouldn't just download it or rent it. You'd actually have to go to a store and pay another human and grab a DVD. Uh, and for about seven bucks, you get to watch that movie for two days. Uh, and then you could bring it back, or if you don't, there's like $35 late fees or something like that. Blockbuster video, and then at one point, Blockbuster went to be with the Lord because it was no more. 
live streaming of videos came in and people didn't need to go to Blockbuster. They could just rent a video from home. Well, these disciples are saying our business is, is being threatened. Not their business, but more their prominence. So what is John's reaction? What is John's reaction? I have two things I want you to see in this passage. Number one, John declares that Christ is supreme. John declares that Christ is better than he is, that he is more important than he is. In verse 27, John says he, can, he takes no credit for the fame he had. All of that is a gift from heaven. In verse 28, he, he shows he understands his role. He said, you, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said to you, I am not the Christ. John is saying, you got to understand, I've told you it's not about me. I've told you he's coming. What he's saying is, I'm just the, the assist man. I'm the sign pointing to the great thing. I'm the one throwing the oliub. I'm not the one dunking it. It's not about me. I'm just a setup man. He's saying, but this person is more important than I am. Look at verse 29. John says, he gives an illustration of how he's not as important. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this is the joy of mine, or so this joy of mine has been made full. Okay, what's all this talk about a bride, bridegroom? Are we on TLC here, Pinterest? What's going on? You know, some of you are, are confused. Here's what he's saying. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? Probably, I'm assuming a lot of people in here. Okay, so there's some important characters at a wedding. Obviously, the bride and groom, without them, typically the wedding does not happen. Uh, but there's another character in the wedding who is the best man. Uh, he, he's the, the helper there. And I've had the privilege of being a best man in a wedding, and I fulfilled all my best man duties. I wore the exact same outfits as everyone else. I got there six hours early and just kind of hung out and didn't do anything. I, I stood there while they had a toddler bring the rings down instead of having me hold them. So I've, I've fulfilled the best man duties. You know what no one ever leaves a wedding saying? No one ever leaves a wedding saying, whoa, did you see that best man? That was an unbelievable performance by that best man. He truly was the best man there. I mean, clearly, he stood there smiling, right? He, he fulfilled his role. He did, gave that toast where he talked more about himself than the couple. I mean, he, he really rocked his best man duties, right? right? No one does that because all the focus is on the groom and the bride, but not primarily on the wedding party. That's what John is saying. He goes, hey, my joy is made full. My happiness is made full because it's about him and not about me. Which is why John joyfully says in John 10.30 or 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the mindset of John the Baptist. He's saying, you've got it all wrong. You think this life's about me? This life's about him. This whole life is about him who is greater than me. My whole life is about making him known. And Christian, that's your role as well. Your whole life is about him, not about yourself. Verse 29, it talks about your joy being made full. Some of you right now have no interest in the things of eternity. 
and you're miserable because you continue to live for yourself and not for Jesus Christ. John is saying, it's not about me, it's about him. And he gives five reasons why your whole life should be about Christ. Five of them, and we're going to work through them quickly because they're in this passage here. He gives five. Point number two, John describes why Christ is supreme. He describes why Christ is supreme. He's saying, my whole life's about him. It's all about him, not about me. And here's why. Five of them, and we're going to work through them quickly. Number one, he says that Jesus is supreme in his origin. He's supreme in his beginning. Verse 31, it's because he comes from above. He must increase and I must decrease because he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He's saying this person is greater than me because he's from a place that's greater than me. I'm not a great person. He is a great person because he comes from heaven above. Second of all, he is supreme in his testimony. Jesus is supreme in his truth, you could write. Verse 32, speaking of the Lord, he says, what he has seen and heard, of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. Jesus Christ is the source of all truth. That's what John is getting at. He's going, I'm, I'm not the one who's the source of all truth. If you want to know the truths about reality, the truths about heaven, the truths about hell, the truths about where I'm going to spend eternity, the truths about marriage, the truths about dating, the truths about how I should live within this church and, and on my planet, I need to get those truths from Jesus Christ. And he has truth, and he has truth that I can trust in. And therefore, he is supreme, and life is all about him, not about myself. Verse 33 and 34 go on to say that what Jesus speaks are the words from the Father. He is supreme in his truth. Thirdly, he is supreme in his power. He has all power. Uh, Jesus Christ has all power. In his earthly ministry, he functioned under the power of the Holy Spirit. But Colossians 1 says that it was through the power of Jesus that the world was created. He created all things. Hebrews 1 also says that he created all things. He is the most powerful being in existence, and therefore life is about him and not me. He is supreme in his authority. Verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Do you realize that Philippians 2 says that right now, Jesus Christ has been exalted to the most supreme position in all of the universe? He's on the top of the chain. He has been exalted. And therefore, our life should be about him and not the trivial things of this world, not the passing things of sports, not the emptiness of relationships or drugs or alcohol, but it should be about him. And fifthly, Jesus is supreme in his impact on your eternity. Verse 36, I think, in and of itself is enough well, you should say, I want my life to be all about Jesus Christ. Verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Has eternal life. Life as a citizen. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Why should you live as a citizen focused on eternity? Why should your whole life be about the Savior? Because Jesus Christ is the dividing line between heaven and hell. What you do with him will determine where you ultimately spend eternity. Why is this? Here's why. Because you and I are sinful people. You and I have rebelled against God. And not just broken some rules accidentally, but we've intentionally and purposely and with intent in our heart rebelled against God. And because of that, Scripture says that you and I deserve eternal wrath. How could we hope to have heaven when we have sinned against a perfectly good God? And yet God provided one way for us to be made right. He provided one way for us to be made right for our sin. And that is through Jesus Christ coming to earth, living the perfect life you should have lived. And at the end of his life, going to the cross and not just enduring being nailed to a piece of wood, not just enduring being beat, but scripture says that Jesus on the cross endured the wrath of God. He endured the hell that you and I should have endured. So that if you trust in him, if you place your hope in him, then you can have that wrath removed from you and you could be called a citizen. How incredible is that love that enemies of God could be made right with him through the sacrifice of his own son. How amazing is that? That, that calls us, that demands that we surrender all to follow after Jesus Christ. We surrender this life and make our whole life about him and about eternity. So my question tonight is, have you? Have you surrendered all to Jesus Christ? Are you living your life for him? Are you a citizen? And if you call yourself a citizen, I would ask you to look at your life and determine, are you living like one? Are you living like one who's going to spend eternity with Christ forever? I pray that God would work in your heart through that question this week. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the example of John the Baptist who says that you must increase. Life needs to be more and more about you and less and less about ourselves. More and more about your son and eternity with him and less and less about this life, this world. Father, I pray you challenge us tonight, you challenge us this week. God, that we wouldn't just live casual Christian lives that are just existing and attending Bible study after Bible study, gobbling up sermons, but no, no pursuit of you. I pray that, that we would be broken by the amazing love you've shown to us on the cross. We would be in awe of who you are and how you treated us as your enemies. and that we would live focused as citizens of your kingdom.
giving all to your kingdom now. We thank you and we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.